Good morning. Christmas is a wonderful season, a lot to be reminded of that is fun and bright and enjoyable, time to be with family and maybe reunited with some friends, to eat well, to give gifts, to open gifts, all of that. But real life's going on all around us, every day. And I don't have to tell you that. You know that, that life's full of challenges. Um, one of our newest members is uh, leaning on Jesus very hard this morning. Um, Ron and Eliana Perez recently joined our church, um, and Ron passed away yesterday. And uh, so Eliana needs to be on our hearts. We need to be lifting her up and praying for her, giving her strength. We celebrate with Ron. He is with Jesus. He is with the one who was born in Bethlehem. He's with him. He's good. We need to lift up Eliana. So pray for her. I'm going to pray for them now. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you that all your promises are yes in Jesus. And the best promise of all is that death is but a door that leads to you. For those who have faith in Christ, thank you that Ron closed his eyes in death and opened them and he is with you. Whole, healthy, new. Thank you. Be with Ilion. Be with her. With the difficult tasks ahead and ministering to family and to children and to friends. Let, let us love on her well. And be with her. Comfort her. Give her a peace that passes. It has to. Passes human understanding this morning. And just be with her in a powerful way this morning. We thank you that the promises of Christmas are true. But life is hard, even at Christmas. So Father, just come. By your Spirit, come and minister to us this morning through your Word. By your Holy Spirit, invigorate us. Quicken our hearts and our minds. Deepen our faith this morning as we see the truth of your Word. Come, Holy Spirit, we commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell a quick story. Um, goes with where we're going this morning. Uh, <clears throat> the Berries are back at Orangewood for a second glorious tour of duty. Some of you know that, some of you may not. I served here as an assistant pastor uh, beginning in 2003 through 2007, and then uh, our, our economy went through a little hiccup in 2008, and I, I think at the time we had six pastors. I was blessed to be one of them, and, uh, and, and I was released from my call. Um, we had bought a house uh, near, the, near the church and um, had begun renovating it, 
Uh, God blessed us with a fourth daughter while we were here between 03 and 08 with Eliana, and we had a, uh, our house, we, we, desired, we desired to make it a little bigger. So we took the two-car garage, and I um, um, maxed out my second mortgage, and we built it out into a master bedroom and a master bath. Uh, and, and then God released me from my call here. And then 08 happened. And then I suddenly was upside down on my mortgage and God led us to a mountain town called Boone in North Carolina where he used my family to help build, strengthen a church there for a decade. Uh, when we moved up there, I was, we tried to sell our house here for about, I don't know, maybe a year. Um, no, no takers. It was a rough time to sell, right? And uh, I was a little miffed at God for not allowing us to sell our home so we could buy one up there in the mountains, but he didn't let us do that. And instead, he wanted the stewards, missionaries to Japan in that house a few years, and then he wanted the DeVries <laughs> in that house for a few years. Um, my daughter, through those 10 years, my eldest graduates from college and makes the decision to return to Orlando um, while we're still in Boone, right? And she moves back to Orlando and um, uh, ends up um, being invited by by uh, Don Bradley to live with her. Don, Don Bradley had bought a house that is the back fence neighbor to the house I couldn't sell. And then God released us from our call in Boone with no call. We believed, we didn't leave, we weren't asked to leave. We chose to leave after 10 years of ministry there. We, Amy and I believed God had released us. We didn't know where we were going next, but we knew God was God, and we had mustard seed faith at least to know that he was going to put us where he wanted us. Um, guess what? Here I am. Miffed at God because he wouldn't let us sell our house. I moved right back into it. And Addie needing a place to live, turned our master bedroom and master bath into an apartment. God provided her housing. God provided us housing. housing. Isn't, that, isn't that just like God? He's sovereign. He knows every detail of your life 10 years from now, right now. He knows it. And he loves you. And he's good. The question is, am I going to trust him between now and 10 years from now? Am I going to keep believing that he's good and that he is sovereign and that he's merciful and he will never change and he loves me and he's keeping me amidst life and death, illness and health, all that life throws at us. He's good. I needed to learn that. I still need to learn that. So I share that because we're going to be looking at a passage um, I made slides for my sermon, and there's lots of scripture on them, some, some of them. And so I have a screen I can look at, but I may turn around and read those passages. Don't be offended, you know. 
The pastor's turning his back on us. I want you to look at the scriptures if I'm looking at them. So, so look at them, okay, as we go. All right. So the sermon title's Too Little, Too Late, and it's Micah 5. I've never preached this text before, but it's very appropriate for the second week in Advent because what candle did we just light? The candle of Bethlehem. And this is a very famous prophecy that tells us that the Messiah is going to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. And we're going to spend some significant time talking about why that word little is so important. And why is the song titled that? So let's do a little context. Micah, minor prophet. There are major prophets in the Bible and minor prophets. Guess how they get that distinction? By how long their books are. The guys who wrote really long books are the major prophets. The guys who wrote the little books, they're the minor prophets. Micah's a minor prophet. When did he live? He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos. He lived in 700 BC. He lived in the divided kingdom of Israel, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. How did they get divided? Remember David and Bathsheba? There are consequences to your prideful, sinful choices that sometimes last for generations. So he lives in Judah, the southern kingdom, okay? The northern kingdom, during his lifetime, is attacked by Assyria and swept away. And what was that all about? That was God's judgment because God's people had left God. And they had begun to pursue idols and other gods and, and became arrogant, prideful, and pursuant of wealth. So the northern kingdom is exiled by Assyria, and the southern kingdom is about to be swept away by Babylon, and that's part of what Micah's talking about in his little book. He prophesied against the last Jewish kings, the chief priests and the prophets, for their idolatry and their pursuit of power and wealth that impoverished the very people they were to take care of. They became so into themselves that they used their people for their own advancement. So that's what's going on. So Micah prophesied the impending arrival of Babylon's army who would sweep away the southern kingdom kind of as the second part of God's judgment on his people for walking away from him, from breaking his covenant. But here's what's cool. In this little book, not only is there judgment, but there are pieces of prophecy that talk about a time of restoration, a future hope for a restored kingdom that would be led by an eternal shepherd king. And we know who that is, Jesus. So that's the context. So here's the text, and it kind of breaks up into three Ps, all right? So there's the place, there's the person, and then there's the promises in these few verses, okay? The place, the person, and the promises. 
Uh, verse 2 is where the place is mentioned, and that's Bethlehem. We'll get into that. And then in uh, 2b, the second half of verse 2, uh, that's where one is mentioned. And then there's all these third-person pronouns in the rest of the text. He, 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 his, he. This one that is going to come forth from Bethlehem is a person, and it's a he. All right? And then the promises are in uh, continue. They really start in verse 2, but they go all the way down through verse 5a. So that's how we're going to break it out. And let's start with the place. So the verse is this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah. What an interesting verse God chose through the Holy Spirit to put into his, into his scripture. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans. So the question arises in this little piece of prophecy. Micah in verse 2 is contrasting the insignificance of this little town with the importance, the, the vital importance of the one who is going to be born there. That's what he's drawing out by throwing you know, that's why verse 2 is there, this contrast. Why is this contrast important? Is it important? Yes, it is. Why should we note that God is intentionally making this contrast? Well, let's consider what God has done in Bethlehem uh, so far, up until, up until uh, Christ's birth, or to include his birth. There are four events that I want you to notice. And I'm, I'm just going to go through them, um, but I'll tie them together here in just a minute. So in 1550 BC, Rachel, and you kind of have to go, okay, Bible trivia, who's Rachel? Oh, she was married to Jacob. Jacob was the guy who worked for his uncle or worked for Laban, wanted to marry Rachel, right? Laban gave him Leah on his wedding night. He worked for another 14, 14, another seven years. So he could have Rachel for his wife as well. Well, Rachel in 1550, the chosen wife of Jacob, Abraham's grandson, she dies. How does she die? Giving birth. You'll see this theme giving birth to her second son. Her first son was Joseph. Her second son is Benjamin. That's Jacob's name for it. She had a name similar that meant son of suffering, son of my suffering. That's what she named her second son. And she died giving birth. So that's Rachel. Abraham's grandson's chosen wife who continues the line of God's people promised all the way back in Genesis 12, 15, 17 of Abraham. God pulls this guy out. He's a moon worshiper, comes from a pagan family. He believes God's promise to him that I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make your name famous. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a land. Abraham believes God's promise, and we, Paul tells us later that 
Abraham's trust in God's promise was credited to him as righteousness. We see faith. Abraham put faith in God's promises, and now we see this line of Abraham growing and spreading. So there's Rachel. In 1100 BC, we have a widowed immigrant, a Moabitess. Her name is Ruth, not even part of God's family. She's widowed. Her Jewish husband has died. She's childless. She's fairly poor. And she's hanging out with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she doesn't just hang out with her, but she declares herself that, Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God is my God. She puts faith in Yahweh. What happens to her? Naomi returns back to her hometown, Bethlehem. Why? Because Naomi's husband's died. Her two sons have both died. She's returning home to family. Where does she return to? Bethlehem. It's Bethlehem where Ruth is gleaning in the fields and she's noticed by a Jewish man named Boaz who is a descendant of Abraham and he chooses Ruth and they marry and have a son named Obed and Obed has a son named Jesse and Jesse has eight sons, the youngest of which is David. So that brings us to around 1000 BC, Jesse's overlooked shepherd boy, David, is chosen to be the next king of Israel. He's later promised a descendant. King David is promised a descendant by God. It's the Davidic covenant. And God says, David, one of your descendants will be on the throne forever, forever. That's pretty crazy. So there's that. And then in 4 BC, Mary, Mary and Joseph, both descendants of David. And because King Herod, wicked King Herod, wants to make more money, he declares a census. Everybody has to go back to their town of origin. And Joseph and Mary go back to Bethlehem. Why? Because a king wants more taxes has nothing to do, as you can tell, with God or godliness or holiness or anything like that, but they have to go back at just the right time. So here's what's interesting. Let me point out something. The, the name Bethlehem Ephrathah, you'll see at the top of this slide, Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. Interesting that the bread of life comes from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. And it's interesting that Ephrathah means fertile. Now just look at that list. Rachel was barren for many, many years in, with her marriage with Jacob. Could not have children, jealous of her sister. But God, in time, opened her womb. And she had Joseph and Benjamin. Ruth doesn't have a husband. She can't have any children. She's not even married. Her husband died. God provides her a husband, another husband, a new relationship, a new marriage. And she has a child and ends up being the grandmother 
to Jesse, David, King David's father. And then David, okay, we know that the Davidic, the Davidic covenant has been given to David that something very important is going to happen through his lineage as well. Even though he's a sinner. The reason there is a northern and southern kingdom is because of David's sexual sin. And God told him, said, because of this sin, your kingdom's going to be divided and the sword will always be part of your household. And that's what we see. And then Mary, an insignificant teenage girl from a no-name town. Nothing, does anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> One of the apostles once asked. So, these unlikely people are all chosen to grow the family of God. That's a beautiful thing. Especially if you're willing to acknowledge that you're a fairly unlikely person. God freely chooses the lesser to bring forth his greater purposes. Let me repeat that. God freely chooses the lesser to bring forth his greater purposes. I just want to show you the text in 1 Samuel 16, where David is selected by Samuel to be king. Just look at this. When they came, when Samuel came, he looked at Eliab. That's David's biggest brother. You know, Samuel's come. He's going to pick the next king. Let's pick the big, strong eldest brother, Eliab. And, uh, and, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then look at this last section. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has chosen none of these. <laughs> Sorry, Jesse, none of these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. So the beautiful thing about that is that God chooses the unlikely, chooses the youngest, chooses David. Okay, Paul has something to say about who God chooses. Look at this passage. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Then he goes on to say, why? Why does God choose the weak, the foolish, the low and despised, the things that are not? Look to bring to nothing things that are, or may I put it this way, to bring to nothing people that think more highly of themselves, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being can might boast in the presence of God. No human being might boast. That's why God chooses the weak, the foolish, the small, the little, that's why, 
because God alone is worthy of glory. You know that God is the only I am. All of us are I am because God. He's the only I am. When you start thinking you're an I am, that's trouble. Pride comes before a fall. God's gracious to his children when we get prideful because he lets us fall to wake us up so that we'll run back to him. So that's why God chooses little things because he gets the glory. He alone is due glory. I love verse 30. It says, so that no man being, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you, if you're a believer this morning, why? Because you're bright, because you're privileged, because you're a good person, because you came from good stock, because you were born on the right side of the tracks, because God just thinks you're awesome. Why? Because you're in Christ because of God, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in whom? The Lord. It's the only reason we have to ever boast about anything. Do you understand that every gift and ability you have is been gifted to you by him? And do you understand that one nanosecond worth of exercising that gift is only that nanosecond because God is powering you to be able to use and enabling you to use the gift that he's given you? We have no place to boast. There's no room to boast but in Christ. And if you're in Christ, wow, we have all kinds of things to boast about. Okay. John Piper says this, the deepest meaning of the littleness and insignificance of Bethlehem is that God does not bestow the blessing of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of our greatness or our merit or our achievement. He does not elect cities or people because of their prominence or grandeur or distinction. When he chooses, he chooses freely in order to magnify the glory of his mercy, not the glory of our distinctions. Glory to God in the highest, not glory to us. We get the glory or we get the joy. He gets the glory like that quote. So listen, God chose two little people, two insignificant young people from Nazareth to travel to a two little town 90 miles away, six miles south of Jerusalem, at a time when there was too little room, no room in the inn, right? Uh, to stay in a stable with too little accommodations, too little furniture, too little comfort, to be visited by too little shepherd, marginal shepherd people. What's up with that? Why does he do that? Why is the Christmas story smathered with two little people because so mankind can't boast. And so God gets all the glory. All right, so that's the place. Let's look at the person. It's pretty clear here, right? From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me. I love that little for me. Think about that for a minute. Who's me? Who's speaking there? From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth, whose birth, is from of old, from ancient days. Think about that. What is God saying? What is Micah telling us through this? And then you see those uh, third-person pronouns throughout. So for from you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So I want to just look at these three phrases. There is one coming who's going to be born in Bethlehem, who is for me. Who is me? It's God the Father. It's God the Father, right? That's so cool. For me, the Messiah comes because God the Father wills it and sends him. The Father God plans, the Son executes, and the Holy Spirit applies. That's the Trinity. And it's real, and it's glorious, and it's rather wonderful. So, coming out of Bethlehem is this Messiah for the Father. And it's Jesus being born an infant. To be ruler of Israel. Okay, here's the, here's the wild part. When is Micah writing this statement? That out of Bethlehem is going to become a ruler in Israel. What's about to happen? Judah is about at its lowest possible point. Jerusalem is going to be attacked by Babylon. The nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, is about to be destroyed. And what's Micah talking about? Hey, Beth, in this little town of Bethlehem, one's going to come, and he's going to be ruler in Israel. Wow, that's hope. That's settled assurance, isn't it? Micah has faith. Micah's writing about truth that should give us encouragement and faith. And then lastly, from of old, from ancient days, the Messiah comes. Listen, why does Messiah come? Because God planned him to come before the foundations of the world. God is not on our little linear timeline. He's not stuck in here with us. He is outside of it. He's actually the author of it. He's actually orchestrating it. He's the reason I'm back at Orangewood. He's the reason I'm back in my house. He's the reason my daughter had a place to live for six months. He's the reason my daughter has now gotten married. He's the reason. Good job, Cody. He's the reason. From of old, from ancient of days, God knows where you're going to be in 10 years now. He knows exactly how to get you there. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He knows what he's going to teach you along the way. He knows your mountaintops, your valleys, and he's never going to leave you or forsake you. He has not left Ron Perez. He is next to Ron Perez. He has not left Ileana. He is with Ileana, and he's given us the privilege to represent him with her too. It's mysteriously wonderful. So the Messiah comes at just the right time. Look, in the New Testament. But when the fullness of time had come, God knows exactly when Jesus needed to arrive. Exactly. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 5, 6, 8. For while we, listen, for while we, we're in there, for while we were still weak, at the right 
time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, he came. You are in this room at just the right time. I am having to preach this morning at just the right time. God has us. We are held and kept, and he's powering us, and he's powering Orangewood, and he's faithful and good and true. Praise God. So Jesus comes forth exactly where, when, and how God the Father has chosen and planned for him to come. Every circumstance is, pur is purposeful. How God orchestrated this birth moment to fulfill his prophecy is proof positive that you can trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to remind you. I want to remind you. Sorry, that sounded condescending. Forgive me, Lord. Why are Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem when she's ready to give birth? Is that where she wants to be? Is that where she wants to give birth? In a stable? Is that in a, putting her baby in a manger? Is that where she wants to be? Absolutely not, I would say. But why are they there? Because a godless man is serving his own greed. And here's the beauty of it. And over that godly man serving his own greed is a God orchestrating all things so everything happens exactly when and how it needs to happen for his eternal plan to be right on target. You can say the same about Jesus nailed to the cross on that sad but good Friday at exactly the right time, exactly where he needed to be, doing exactly what God had called him to be doing so that you and I could be exactly the right place now hearing what he wants us to hear. It's amazing. So lastly, the promises. So what I did was I kind of boiled this down. So here are the six, six prophetic statements. One shall come to rule. Remember when Micah is saying this prophecy, the southern kingdom's about to be attacked and swept away by Babylon. And Micah is prophesying about a coming king in Israel. People must have thought he was nuts. The prophets, well, most of the prophets in his day, those are the ones he was prophesying against. You know what they were doing? They were giving good prophecy for money. That's what they were doing, okay? It'd be like you being a financial advisor and having a bunch of clients and go, yes, you're gonna make a million dollars. Thank you, I'll take my, my cut now. Yes, I'll take my cut now. That's what they were doing. They were selling good prophecy to the Israelites. They were milking their own people, impoverishing their own people by sharing lies as if it were God's word. No wonder God is ready to judge them and bring Babylon in. So one shall come to rule in Israel. He shall come through childbirth as a baby. Another prophet, his contemporary Isaiah, also talks about the Messiah coming as a baby from a virgin. Go figure that one out. We, we know, right? We know. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she became pregnant with the Messiah. He shall stand and shepherd his people. I love this. He shall stand. He's not lying down expecting us to serve him. He is standing. He is shepherding. He is watching over. He is guarding over. He is keeping. He is tending. He is healing his sheep. He shall stand and shepherd his sheep with God's strength and majesty. His flock, I love this one, his flock 
shall dwell secure. Those of us in here who, by God's grace, are children of God, we are sons and daughters of God, but sometimes we act like orphans, don't we? We act like we don't know where our next meal is going to come from, or, oh my gosh, you're not taking care of me, God. Is he not? No, he is. He's taking care of you exactly the way you needed to be taken care of so that you will give him all the glory and stop trying to rob it for yourself. His flock shall dwell secure. He shall be great over the whole earth. He shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Not the next administration. <laughs> Not my 401k has reached this level. Not any of that. Jesus shall be our peace. He is your peace. Not any circumstance of this world. Promises point to one man. All these promises point to Jesus. It's clear. And it's beautiful. And the question is, have you placed your faith there? I want to share this last little bit of Micah 7. Near the end of his book, he writes this. Who is God? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I love that terminology. Who is our greatest enemy? Our unbelief. Our unbelief is our greatest enemy. Our sin is our greatest enemy. What's our champion shepherd king going to do? He's going to tread our iniquities underfoot. He did that on the cross. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Beautiful. Beautiful. Micah got it. Micah believed in this Messiah. There's forgiveness in trusting Christ. There's new life to be lived through trusting him daily. Let's just look at these passages, okay? Just a few. But look at the attitude of the heart when coming to God to be cared for. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Humble yourself, James says. Humble yourself before the Lord. And what will God do? He will lift you up. What do the arrogant do? They try to lift themselves up. but only God gets the glory. Only God is the true lifter of your head. So here's the fourth stanza of O Little Town of Bethlehem. And as I read it, I'm going, there's, I'm, that's a prayer. I need to pray that for my heart this morning. Look at that. O holy child of Bethlehem, 
descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Pray with me. Oh, Father, I'm a mess. I'm prone to think more highly of myself. I'm prone to think I can do things I have no business trying to do. I want to play God. Father, if I'm honest, deep down in my heart, there are parts of me that want to be God. I am so sorry for the propensity in my being to exchange the truth, the glorious truth of your word for the lies of the enemy and the lies of this shattered world. Father, thank you. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you quicken our faith. Thank you for choosing us. Choosing us, not because of anything in us, but choosing us because of your great mercy and your infinite love. Freely choosing us to show us sovereign mercy through the years, through the centuries, through the millennia. Father, I just thank you for the gospel. And I thank you that though you know, though you know that we're broken and you know our sin, Father, you have sent your son to do what we could never do, to live a perfect life and to take the penalty and punishment of your wrath for our sin on the cross and then to be risen, to rise again and to offer this news to us sinners. And that if we put our faith and trust in this truth, these truth proclamations, if we believe them for ourselves, we are given, we are given the greatest gift that could be given. We are given eternal life with you. We are given the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. We are given eyes that can begin to see your truth, ears that can begin to hear and understand your word. And we're given a body, we're given a family, we're given a church. Thank you. Thank you for Orangewood. Thank you for this body. Father, come, deepen our hearts, strengthen our faith. Thank you that you are a God that chooses little, weak, foolish things that are not like Chuck Berry. <laughs> Thank you. I praise you. Thank you. Please come. Please build us up in truth. Please strengthen us. Please give us courage to run to you humbly, to pour out our stuff to you, to confess to you, to re-up, to follow you afresh to ask you to come and open our ears and our eyes and help us to walk with Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen.